chapter 2. Um, if you find that, you can stand. <clears throat> I'm going to be preaching from chapter 3, but I'm going to read from chapter 2. Chapter 2, Nehemiah, beginning verse 17. <clears throat> then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gesem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And I'll pray. God, again, thank you for your word and for this immense privilege that we have to gather together in the name of Jesus. We thank you for all that has been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus, that the work is finished, that our sin has been paid for, and that we will never have to suffer the consequences of what we deserve because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you that we do, God, um, partake of you through the nature that you have given us, which has made us partakers of, of your very life. And we um, now, God, just gather together and want to hear of you, from you and to be fed by you and that your ministry in us would be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate John filling in for me last week. Patsy and I were in Florida. Uh, I was preaching at a church there, and then we took a couple days just to relax, which was very nice and glad for the opportunity. We're in Nehemiah, and we're actually in chapter 3. And, um, you know, as I, as I was preparing, I really have spent a lot of time this past week looking at chapter 4 through 7 and kind of in my mind, just kind of skipping over chapter 3 a little bit, I know better than to do that because every word of Scripture is inspired by God. It's all here for a reason. But it's just a lot of hard names to pronounce. And if I had done the Scripture reading this morning trying to read from chapter 3, you would have laughed. And so it's just a difficult chapter to read because it's just one name after another. Um, something like I went through and counted them, and it's just it's dozens of names um, very difficult, at least for my Texas mouth. And, um, and so I thought, well, what, you know, it's, I know it's here for a reason, but let's just go to chapter 4. But the, I, just the more I looked at chapter 3, the, I just felt like I can't skip it. Um, it's here, and God wants us to, to learn from it. It's profitable. And if you read through chapter 3, one of the things, two things are happening. One is Nehemiah is listing all these different people that worked on building the wall. That's obvious. And then the second thing is, is that he highlights all the different gates of the city. Not as obvious, but it's there. It starts with the very first verse. We'll look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. So it starts with the sheep gate, and there's ten gates to Jerusalem. Now, the area of Jerusalem is in question as far as how, mu how much acreage the, um, these, ten wall, these ten gates and the wall covered. At the, at the smallest, it was something like 90 acres. And at the biggest, it was 220 acres. 
So in either way, it's a pretty um, significant piece of real estate for a bunch of people to get together and build a wall, and we're going to find out they're going to build it in only 52 days. So starting with the sheep gate, then the thing, I, as, as I read through this, one every commentary says the, the gates are described in a counterclockwise thing. Well, what's the big? They didn't have watches, so they didn't know what counterclockwise was, right? And I, but, but I thought, is that the normal way? And so that kind of got me thinking, is that the normal way to describe something, even in their time when they didn't have watches and clocks, to describe something counterclockwise rather than clockwise? And I don't think it was. But I didn't know for sure. But I did know, if you look back at the book of Numbers, chapter 2, when the camp of Israel is being described, it's being described in a clockwise motion. Maybe that doesn't mean anything, but that tells me that that's the normal way they describe things, was clockwise. This is counterclockwise with these gates. Maybe there's something to it. But I don't want to over-spiritualize the text. Bad to do that, okay? And then I, as I was reading, pulled out my trusty... Um, J. Vernon McGee commentaries, and J. Vernon McGee, who is not prone to spiritualizing the text, just says it for what it is, he's saying that there is a spiritual lesson going on with these gates and why they are listed in the order that they are and going counterclockwise as they are. And he's not alone. An older um, Bible scholar, Ironside, H.A. Ironside, does the same thing and says there's a message here to why these gates are laid out as they are. So, no, we should not approach Scripture trying to look for a spiritual lesson in everything. We don't want to over-spiritualize the text. But yes, God is into symbols. And there are many places in Scripture where we see God using just normal things in a symbolic way. Many places in Scripture. The rock in the wilderness that Moses struck, that was a picture of Christ. And you have the leprosy is a picture of sin. The healing of leprosy is a picture of salvation. All the, the construction of the tabernacle, the way it was laid out and the materials that were being used. Many authors have, have written about how much symbolism was involved in all of those things. So we know that God is into symbols. We just don't want to put words into God's mouth and we have to be very careful about interpreting things as symbolic when the interpretation is not given to us in Scripture. So I I am going to venture into this tentatively, um, not dogmatically, but I am intrigued by these things. So here's the layout. Ten gates. Sheep gate, fish gate, old gate, valley gate, dung gate, that's a fun one, fountain gate, water gate, horse gate, east gate, inspection gate, and then it comes back around and finishes with another mention of the sheep gate. Interesting. Now, I don't have a PowerPoint because all I can do, this is my PowerPoint, okay? I'm pointing powerfully. That's about as good as it gets for a PowerPoint. <laughs> um, but if I had something up on the screen, you would see the picture of Jerusalem, and the first gate, the sheep gate, is right up in the northeastern corner of the city, okay? And it is the sheep gate, just like it sounds, where the sheep were brought into the Jerusalem, for the Passover and for all the different sacrifices that were taking place. They brought in the sacrificial animals through the sheep gate. It happens, just so happens, obviously not just so happens, that Jesus, we believe, most of the time that he entered Jerusalem, entered through the sheep gate. There are ten gates that Jesus could have come through. Almost every time he entered through the sheep gate. 
We, he didn't do that when he entered Jerusalem at the end of his ministry for the triumphal entry. On that occasion, he entered through the eastern gate, which faced toward the Mount of Olives and was lined up with the temple. And every other occasion, it appears that Jesus used the sheep gate. Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he is the one who offers himself to Israel as the sacrifice for our sins. So maybe something's going on there. So it just seems a little suspicious that that would be his preferred gate to enter through, the same gate where the sheep, the sacrificial animals were brought um, whenever sacrifices were being made. Still in the northern um, part of the city, and right in line with the sheep gate, but going over to the west, is the um, fish gate. And J. Vernon McGee points out that after you have trusted Christ to remove your sin and, and to grant you eternal life, at that moment you are made what? A fisher of men. Your identity changes. And you, don't be, you are no longer what you were. Life is no longer about you. It's now about others. And God saves you through faith in Christ, the Lamb of God, and He makes you a fisher of men. And then we start down the western side of the city, and we come to the Old Gate. Why the Old Gate? It's not a very good name, Old Gate. They're all old gates. This gate's not any older than any of the other old gates. They're all old gates, right? But this one was always called the Old Gate. Jade Vernon McGee would say it's because you need to realize that when you become a Christian, there is not any new truth for you. The truth that you heard when you received Christ is the only truth you will ever need to hear. God doesn't have new truth. He doesn't have uh, new revelations for you that exceed what God has already said. All that you received when you received Christ is all that you will ever need. The truth is the same. There is nothing more. We don't ever go beyond Scripture. We don't search for new truth. Certainly God makes things new to us. God makes things fresh to us. God opens our eyes to things, but it is always the eternal truth of God, and He doesn't add to it. And then you go way down that western wall until quite a distance. It's the longest distance between gates, and you come to the valley gate. And it's the valley, and there's valleys on every side. This is a hilltop. And so every side of the city had valleys around it. So why would this gate be called the valley gate? Because one of the things that we need to understand is that even though you have received Christ, placed your trust in the one who is the Lamb of God to take away your sin, and now you've become a fisher of men, and you've been given the truth that is an old truth, it is, it is an eternal truth, it's an unchanging truth, but life is hard. And there are a lot of valleys. In fact, again, if you look at this at the map, I'm pointing powerfully to my map here, that it's just, it's a long section where valley, valley, and, and you go, this is, is, you go, why? It's just this big section that just screams out, valley. Because a lot of life is about the valleys. I often, when I think about that, I, my mind goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three guys got to go up there. And they weren't allowed to talk about what they saw. But the rest of the disciples had to stay in the valley. 
as Oswald Chambers calls it, the demon-possessed valley. And that's where most of us have to live. And God, in His wisdom, knows when to give us a mountaintop experience. But sometimes we look around and we go, man, that guy, he just lives on the mountaintop. And I don't think I've ever been to a mountaintop. When am I going to get a mountaintop experience? And life can feel very much like we're always in the valley. Well, it's the place of humility. It's the place of brokenness. And it's a place that every Christian has to walk in. It is much of the Christian life. The very next gate, and it's right down at the bottom, right at the very southern part of the city, is the dung gate. And this is where all the excrement was hauled out of the city. Not a nice place. The dung gate. But isn't that sometimes what we feel like? I mean, Paul said it himself. He says, we, we are treated like the scum of the earth. We have, there is nothing good in us apart from Christ. And we can feel like just dung. The valley gate down to the dung gate. And this is the place, um, J. Vernon McGee would say, the place of acknowledging our sin and making confession to God and saying, God, cleanse me. Because as a Christian who have been cleansed of all of our sin, we know that we continually have to come back to God through Jesus Christ for cleansing from our sin. And then immediately we start up the eastern side, and these two gates are the closest in proximity. The dung gate and the very next one, the fountain gate. The gate of water, the gate of life. And so we come to this place, oftentimes we go, there's nothing worthwhile in me. I know I'm saved, but I don't feel saved. And in acknowledging that, that place of brokenness and humility, of lowliness, of just saying, of confession, and then God immediately brings us to the fountain gate. And Vernon McGee would say that's the place of God's indwelling and of spirit filling. And we say, Jesus, I need your filling. Spirit of God, fill me, control me. Jesus says, all those that come to me will never thirst again. And he says, and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. It seems the fountain gate symbolizes that. And then we go up a little further and there's the water gate. Fountain gate, water gate. It's not the water gate you might have heard of in the past. This is a different water gate, the first water gate. And this seems to speak of the cleansing of God's Word. We need the Spirit's indwelling, which we have when we receive Christ, but we need His filling as well. But we not only need the Spirit's filling, we need the Word of God to cleanse us. Jesus said in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. It is, this, it is the word of God that cleanses us and sanctifies us. It is interesting that in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, no, it's chapter, yeah, chapter 8 of Nehemiah, Ezra is going to preach and expound God's word. And guess which gate he does that from? The water gate. Ten gates. He could have said, this is where I'm going to stand and preach. He chose the water gate because the water symbolizes the cleansing 
that God's Word brings to our life. We all need to be under God's Word. God's Word cleanses us as we read God's Word and approach Him through what He has said in His Word. Still continuing north along the eastern side, we come up to the horse gate. Well, horses are used for battle. It's about the only animal that I know of that, that likes battle. Most animals would run away from the commotion of, of artillery going off and men running and clashing into each other and cannons going off. Horses like it. You can ride, it's amazing. You know, people that, that have been involved in, in cavalry and horse in battle that involved horses, they say you, you can, horses will run into battle. The horse gate. It's what kings rode. It's what warriors road. And J. Vernon McGee would say it symbolizes the spiritual battle that we all must take up, that we take up the armor of Christ. We understand we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we have, there's a spiritual powers that we're wrestling against, and we are all in a spiritual battle. And then immediately north of the horse gate is the east gate. And this is the gate that is lined up perfectly with the temple and with the Mount of Olives. And the Bible indicates that when Jesus returns, he will step foot on the Mount of Olives and he will walk through the eastern gate and take his place in the temple. It is the eastern gate that when the watchmen stood on the, gate, on the city walls at night and the watchmen were on the whole perimeter of the city all around on those, on those walls, but the one that, they, that, that the, the privileged place to be was that watchman on the eastern side because he was the guy that got to announce the break of day. Day has come. Because then when you're a not watch, night watchman, the one thing you want to see is the sun cresting up over the horizon because now you know things are going to be safe. And so that guy, more than all the other watchmen, lived in anticipation. And we do as well. Anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. We live in anticipation. We watch for Christ to come again. And he could come, I believe, at any time. And I know like most Christians, I'm praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want him to come. And we should live in watchfulness and anticipation of his soon return. And then the last gate, number 10. What happens when Jesus returns? We face the the Bema Seat of Christ. We don't face judgment per se because when a person places his faith in Christ, he passes out of judgment into life. But the Bema Seat is a place of reward. It is a place of inspection. And the last gate is the inspection gate. That's the place where we are taken to be with the Lord and we stand before Jesus at the Bema Seat, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and each of us will have our works judged, not we ourselves, but our works judged so that we might be recompensed or rewarded for how we live this life. And then Nehemiah brings it back to, again, one more mention of the sheep gate. Starts at the sheep gate, ends at the sheep gate, because everything begins and ends with Jesus. So that's a pretty interesting little study. I kind of like that. Now, can't be too dogmatic about it because Scripture doesn't give us its own interpretation here, but it seems to be reasonable. It doesn't seem to be forced. It seems to flow pretty naturally. So I kind of think maybe that's what God wanted these people 
and wants us to keep in mind as we think about the ten gates of Jerusalem. Now, other observations here. So I said I'm not going to read all of chapter 3. It would be too embarrassing. Um, but there are things here, some basic observations to make. First of all, the first people mentioned working on this wall are the high priest and his fellow priest. Chapter 3, verse 1. The high priest arose with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. So that tells us that the, probably the people that were least likely to be involved in physical labor would have been these men, especially the high priest. He had gotten to a point in life where he didn't do physical labor. But he's not above it. Not this man. And so you have the, the very top echelon of, leader, of spiritual leadership that is involved in the hands-on work of rebuilding the wall. The high priest and, the, and the other priest. And then the next one that are mentioned in verse 2, next to him, the high priest, the men of Jericho built. Now that means these are not locals. So it wasn't just residents within Jerusalem that were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but people were coming from around Israel. There was a lot of participation with this. And Jericho was considered the cursed city. And these people came and they, um, and they took up the labor just as the others had done. So there's many other uh, individuals that are mentioned, and, um, and we see here um, people of high reputation, people of no reputation. We see uh, all kinds of vocations involved. There are goldsmiths involved. There's a perfumer involved. Officials are mentioned numerous times, all kinds of officials from all over Israel. Um, a total of at least eight times officials are mentioned. Um, priests, temple servants, Levites are mentioned five times. Goldsmiths, perfumers, as I said. And one guy gets gets really honorable mention because we're told that he repaired the walls zealously. And so he, he, he was an eager beaver. And so he gets special recognition because he worked so zealously in what he did. That's Baruch in verse 20. So lots of different kinds of people, leaders, Levites, priests, officials, craftsmen, businessmen, inhabitants of Jerusalem and non-locals, men and women. One guy apparently didn't have any sons, and so it says his daughters worked alongside of him. There were wealthy people and there were servants. There was unity, but there was not unanimity. Interestingly enough, it says in one verse here that, that there were a group of people who were not in agreement and not supportive of the rebuilding of the wall. So those that worked, worked with unity. But there was not unanimity. There was at least one person, group of people that were opposed to what was going on. And I would make another observation. You read through this whole list of people, over 40 different individuals, and not a single stonemason is mentioned. How did they get this job done? If you go to Israel today, one of the things that they'll do is take you below street level, near where the western wall is, the Wailing Wall, and you go way down. It must be 100 feet down. And, and you see these massive stones. 
I mean, they weigh many, many, many tons. Like minimum, I think one was 80 tons was a small one. These are huge, massive stones. There were no stonemasons. People that just lived ordinary lives. They were not skilled at what they were doing. And in 52 days' time, without a single stonemason present, the entire wall will be rebuilt. This is phenomenal. They worked hard. It was hard physical labor. They participated, but there were no experts. And there was no one who would have chosen this as his life occupation because there were no stonemasons. So when they all looked around and decided, how do I want to spend my life? None of them said, using rock. Like I remember being in high school and taking several different kind of jobs in my summers and, and you know, usually construction. But one of the things, when you work construction, um, you get to see a lot of trades. And I looked at all these different trades, because I'm thinking, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And I figured out real quick there was one I never, ever, I'm not even going to be tempted by. And it's South Texas, Corpus Christi, where they had all these flat roofs with tar and aggregate. And they had those guys up there in the middle of the summer, 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and they are mopping tar, black tar, onto these roofs. And I'm going, Lord, I pray this never happens to me. I mean, I had nothing but respect for those guys, but I'm thinking, that's the last job on earth I'd ever want to have. Well, apparently, nobody in this group ever wanted to be a stonemason because there were no stonemasons in this group. None that are mentioned. They all, which means they all had to put aside their personal preference for what they would like to do, right? They all had to say, you know, this isn't my first choice for a job. This isn't my 10th choice for a job. I would never choose this for a job. But this is what God has called me to. And they answered the call. I find that impressive. There is no focus here on personal giftedness. Okay? There was no mention of spiritual gifts hardly ever in the Old Testament, not like we think of them. Giftedness is not in focus here. What is in focus is willingness, availability, faithfulness, diligence. Every person had a significant role. Every single person. And they do point out several times, Nehemiah makes, makes reference to they built in front of their home. In fact, seven different times. Not everybody, because there were non-locals involved. Not everybody that even was local lived right next to the wall. But one of the things they did, if you lived near a wall, they said, you're going to build that section of the wall. Pretty smart, because they're going to be a lot more committed to that section of the wall being right, right? <laughs> because that's their part of the wall. And they don't want somebody coming through the wall into their home. But every person was significant. Every person viewed his job as being important. In our staff manual at His Hill, I didn't write this, um, a previous director did, and he writes about the, um, this is under the section, the resources, and, and the first resource at His Hill are the staff members. And, and in respect to the staff members being the number one resource for His Hill, 
This former director wrote, staff members must reflect the conviction that God alone can glorify himself and thus they will seek to live dependently. And then he goes on to say, interpersonal relationships that demonstrate a servant attitude, team mentality, and submission to one another are expected in light of the teaching of Scripture. All interactions must be undergirded with love, respect, and value of each one God brings our way, whether fellow worker, student, or guest. Loyalty to one another, assuming the best, and guarding against any negative, destructive behavior or talk is to be an ever-increasing demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus. Love it. And then he goes on, he says, The sure knowledge that many parts are needed to make a whole will express itself in mutual respect and assisting one another across lines of defined responsibilities. Thus, food service, teaching, maintenance, housekeeping, office, and administrative personnel will neither over nor underestimate their contribution in this ministry. I love that. I mean, we, we go through this every year before the students come in. It just blesses my heart all the time because it's just so true. This is what we're seeing here in this third chapter of Nehemiah. Every single person is significant. Nobody is either underestimating or overestimating their value. The whole of life must have Christ and his word in view. There are no unimportant people, jobs, or times. All are rich with possibilities of demonstrating his sufficiency, power, and wonderful love. The inner life as well as the outer life can and must be a worship service to the one whom Paul said, we live and move and have our being. What were these people doing when they were stacking one rock on top of the other? Worshiping God. There's no other reason why this went so smoothly especially when we look at the upcoming chapters and see the enormous opposition that they were facing. God just was overriding all of that and accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish through people whose lives were yielded to him. Now, if you are going to, you know, maybe have to have a Bible knowledge test, somebody said to you, list to me the most significant doctrinal passages of Scripture. Maybe you'd say Romans 6, 7, and 8. Maybe you'd say the Sermon on the Mount. You could list lots of things, but I guarantee you nobody would say Nehemiah chapter 3. Where is the doctrinal significance of Nehemiah chapter 3? I've never heard any doctrine preached from Nehemiah chapter 3. But clearly it's important to God that God in his eternal word said, you know, let's just skip the doctrine for a minute and let's just talk about people. One person after another mentioned. And that convicts me. If I've had one downfall in my life of ministry, it has not been recognizing people and God's saying recognizing people is important. Who knew when they started building this wall, my name's going to be listed for eternity in God's word. Maybe they would have had more volunteers if they had known that. <laughs> but nobody knew that, did they? Nobody knew when they started building this wall, oh, by the way, you're going to have a brick named after you. <laughs> no. 
they built because they were simply responding to God's moving of their hearts, God's calling upon them. And God said, now let me recognize you. This has always been more than just about a wall. And God honors these people for eternity by listing their names here. I think that's very significant. When I go to, every so often, we have an international staff conference, Torchbearers does, in England. And because it only happens usually every four years, there's always somebody that's retiring or somebody that died. And so they get honored. And I tell you what, man, those Brits, they know how to do honoring things, how to honor people, how to do those kind of services really well. I'm always impressed. I haven't learned well enough from them. But here's what I want to do. Never done this before, but I'm taking my, my cue from God's Word where He says, sometimes you just need to stop talking about the doctrine and give recognition to people. So I want to give a little recognition here. And I want to start with the camp staff at His Hill. Now, I'm not asking you to applaud or throw money at them or anything like that, <laughs> though they would take both. Um, <laughs> but I would like, as I just call the different groups of individuals, I'd like for them just to stand so the rest of you can just see who these people are what they do in the summer at His Hill. So... Counselors, if you're a counselor at His Hill, any counselors in here? Thank you. So you can just stand. You can sit down. Every role is important. None is more valuable than another. As I've looked through this list, I'm going, oh, we could do with that. No, not a single, not a single one is, is non-essential. They all are essential. Kitchen staff. If you work in the kitchen at His Hill. I love our kitchen staff. <laughs> I'm telling you what, they are cooking food for 160 to 200 people three times a day. Those five girls that just stood up. It's amazing. Just amazing. Our little bitty kitchen, if you've seen our kitchen, you'd go, there's no way. And they, that, that many meals they're putting out, it's just incredible. Our housekeeping, if you work it for, in housekeeping at His Hill. <laughs> A lot of turnover in that, in that particular... But be, only because we do that by rotation. We use a lot of high school kids in housekeeping. They're with us on a two-week rotation, and then more will come in. We used to call it, they used to, they nicknamed years ago that role the bowling team because they're cleaning toilet bowls all day long. <laughs> and for many years, it was the first position that filled up every summer. We would have all the volunteers we needed for the bowling team quicker than anything else. And that was just amazing, just the Spirit of God. You know, these young women who want to come and clean toilets to the glory of God. And if you've seen our bathrooms, it's amazing. Well, I mean, just they're spotless. I mean, the kids come in and destroy them. 
literally destroyed him. And then, and a few minutes later, miracle takes place, and you're just going, wow. Our maintenance team, if you're on maintenance, if you're one of the mo boys at his hill involved with that, there's going to be fewer that can stand up. Thank you. These guys work all day long. They get called on to work at night. Things break. They have to come in and fix them. Water lines break. Sewage systems break, um, clog. They have to unplug toilets and unplug sewer lines. That's, you know, and then they're mowing all the time. Great having it rain. We're always praying for rain. You realize when you're praying for rain, it means these guys are mowing. And they're constantly mowing and weed eating. And we appreciate it. It has to be done. The Wranglers... Girls and Mark that work down there, Mark and the girls, and there you'll be here, Wranglers. It's hard, again, out there in the sun, but they have to be so on top of everything, not only fun and, and loving the kids, but they have to be so on top of big, dangerous animals, and God's really kept us safe all through the years. Um, our office workers, Megan, Jade, Lizzie, the all-around, Just so much that goes on in the office. They're the ones that really run camp. And then the leadership, administration, everybody's involved in leadership and administration, but there's, we have Connor and Kevin and Gabe and John and Michael, all you guys, they're, they're just doing so much to keep the place going as well. Appreciate all of you. We have lots of people involved with music. Tabita with the snack bar. Where's Tabita? She's in here. There she is. She runs her. It's great having a German run snack bar. I'm telling you what. <laughs> you will eat what she says to eat. You will buy what she says to buy. We have our pool, and lots of people work with the pool. A lot of the counselors have been trained as lifeguards, but Shay, where's Shay? Shay runs the pool. Stand up, Shay. Shay's been. <laughs> Shay has lived at His Hill, born there at His Hill. I've known her all of her life, and she does a tremendous job. That pool is just sparkling clean, which is hard to do, considering all the, the urine and everything that goes in the pool. <laughs> and, but the most difficult thing she has to put up with is there's always somebody throwing rocks in the pool. And it's just <laughs> terrible. That would be me. Um, I appreciate every one of you. It's just amazing how God's using you. And again... No single person is more important than another. Who among these people would I say we can do without them? Which one of these roles would I say it's dispensable? None of them. But the same is true here at our church. Not a big church, but it's amazing how many people are involved. And I know I'm going to miss some area or some person, but just even with, with finance. Small church, we've got three people that are constantly working with finance here. Brenda Ellsworth, Brenda Washington, Israel Turner, and they've been doing this for many, many years. And I'm so grateful to each of them. They're competent. They're people of integrity. We never have to worry about anything. And they're just, just behind the scenes taking care of making sure that all that bookkeeping and legal stuff is being taken care of. So thank you very much. We have wedding showers, baby showers, funerals that take place, and there's so many different ladies that are involved with that. 
a lot of it has fallen to Penny Turner um, over the years and, and just so grateful to Penny for doing all that. We have bulletins and oh, so many other just miscellaneous things that, that you don't even think about. And because they don't get thought about, who's going to do them? Well, Gwen Turner has been the one who has stood and, and just kind of been in the gap. You always need somebody that will stand in the gap and just look and see the things that need to be done and take the initiative to do it. And Gwen has done that so faithfully all through the years and so appreciative all of us are. As elders, we've talked several times um, about that, these roles and just how significant they are and how valuable these people are. Taking care of our lawn, making sure it gets mowed. Larry Bowden does that. Cleaning the church, the Stamnus is doing that. All of our deacons with looking after the widows, the building, practical needs in the church, vital things that they're concerned with. Making sure communion's put out once a month. My dad and Catchy taking care of that. Our worship team up here, the choir that we now have, the security team, the sound and live stream and the techie guys and all that they do, our Sunday school teachers and nursery workers, the mission committee, and to say nothing really of the importance of all of those that are simply praying. Nothing's more important. And those that just, they're on our, our prayer chain and they get it and they pray. And I know I'm speaking for all the elders, we just see how much God does through the prayers of his people. How could that possibly be less important than me standing here preaching every Sunday? Every single person of value. And I don't know, you know, God's not adding, there's not going to be a 67th book of the Bible written. But I know, I know this, we're all going to stand before the Lord one day. We will be at the Bema Seat of Christ. And we're going to get rewarded. It'll be, all of us are going to have some sense of regret, some sense of loss, Nobody's going to be rewarded as much as we have the potential for because nobody lives 100% of the time by faith and obedience to Christ. Nobody does. But I know this. Every single one of us is going to be recognized by the King of Kings. And he's going to say, thank you. Good job. And, there's, and the honor that we will receive from him. What an amazing time that will be. And we'll go, me? <laughs> what did I do? And he says, you put a rock in the wall. I mean, if those guys are being honored for putting rocks in a wall, Lord Jesus will honor each of us as well as we simply say yes to him. As insignificant as it may appear, Jesus is saying it was anything but. It was an eternal work. That wall was not eternal. But what is done not for Christ, but what is done from Christ is eternal. One of the plaques we have in our walls, you know, whatever, only one life we've been given, whatever is, you know, it'll all soon be passed, but what is done for Jesus, it will last. That is not true. It's a good sentiment, but you can do stuff for Jesus in your flesh, and it's not going to last. It's whatever is done from Christ, that is what will last. Whatever is done from Christ, cleaning a toilet, serving, preparing communion, bringing dishes to potluck, whatever is done from Christ, that will last. And the King of Kings one day is going to 
honor each of us for all that was done from Christ. Amen? I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for these passages of Scripture where you just put the doctrine aside. And as, more, as important as it is, vital as it is, and just focus on people and their importance and the value, God, that you place upon ordinary folks yielding their lives to you and allowing you to use them in very simple, common things. And that you transform the common, Lord, into spectacular, temporal, into eternal, as we live lives yielded and responsive to you. I thank you, God, for all the people that I've recognized this morning, and I know the recognition that you give will be infinitely greater than anything I've said. But I thank you for them. Thank you for how you're using them, for the great blessing they got they are to so many lives. I pray you would encourage them, strengthen them, bless them, God, with peace and joy in knowing, Lord, that you are pleased in how they yield themselves to you and make themselves available to you. In Jesus' name.